Welcome, everybody. And we begin our session now together with prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle within us the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of thy faithful, grant by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady of Knock, pray for us. St. Patrick, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We move on this week to uh, a slightly different topic. So we're looking at, just to orient ourselves here again, we're looking at the three enemies of humanity, the spiritual enemies that we face, that we have to, to do battle with, uh, if we are going to grow in our union of love with God, which is the goal of our spiritual life. So we were looking for the first four sessions, really the introduction, and then three sessions on what's called the flesh. So that's understood as our fallen human nature. Uh, now we move to the second one, the second of our spiritual enemies, which is called the world, the world. So like the flesh, the, the term the world needs a little bit of explanation because it's used in different ways throughout the Bible, even throughout like our, our tradition. Um, in the sense that our tradition uses it uh, for like this, this particular, in this particular case, in describing our spiritual enemy, the world does not mean all of creation. And it doesn't mean all of humanity either. The world, as we're talking about it now, like our spiritual enemy, is the sum total of all of those who oppose Jesus Christ, and oppose the gospel. And those who are uh, those who are sort of in the grips, you'd say, of the threefold concupiscence, like all of us fight it, but those who are sort of, who aren't fighting it, but who are really kind of in the, uh, in the grips of the threefold concupiscence. So those who oppose Jesus and who oppose the gospel, not everyone is the same, obviously, and our tradition recognizes that. So our tradition recognizes four, let's say, different categories of people. So you first you have unbelievers, then you have the indifferent, then you have hardened sinners, and then you have what are called worldlings. Okay, so I'm just going to break those down. So the first is unbelievers. These are people who are hostile to religion. They're uh, consciously hostile because... Ultimately, it condemns their pride. They mightn't say, like, I'm proud, obviously, but they have their judgments, their estimations, and uh, they are determined to kind of carry on with those, and they don't, they resent and would not want um, God or uh, his, like, a community that he established, like the church, uh, to in any way challenge or kind of redirect or to teach them. Uh, those who are unbelievers can also kind of uh, be hostile to religion because they have a love of pleasure or a love of an excessive love of riches. So again, you can see kind of the, the threefold concupiscence there. Then you have the indifferent, right? Uh, they, these are the people who don't want a religion because it would stir them from their apathy. They're quite comfortable and they don't want, it's not as though they're particularly hostile, uh, but they, they're settled where they are. And um, they would see the, the demands, let's say, of like a committed real faith as being something that, you know, they wanted no part of because it would make them uncomfortable. Uh, the third kind are hardened sinners. So these are people who, um, who sin because they kind of love, they love it. They love pleasure, basically. And they don't want to part from it. Uh, I suppose there's, these people mightn't be terribly, the, the difference between maybe these and unbelievers are, they wouldn't be kind of terribly concerned about religion or, or think about it that much. Uh, but these are people who are kind of caught up enthusiastically in sin, or maybe not even enthusiastically, but caught in the grips of it. Uh, then the last type are worldlings. So this is interesting. Now, worldlings are people who believe and even practice their religion. 
but they combine it with a love of pleasure, a love of luxury or love of ease. So they like straddle the world and a commitment to God. And these people, worldlings often scandalize other people by um, kind of presenting a false picture of religion. You know, people would look at someone who's a worldling and say, well, is that all it means to be a Christian? They seem to be no different from anyone else. It doesn't seem to make any sort of an impact at all in their life. They don't seem to be any better. In fact, in, in some cases, they're worse. Again, these are people who are very complacent, who are uh, self-satisfied, who have a little bit of religion, maybe enough to kind of give them a sense of righteousness or whatever, but who are still very much um, attached to things of the world and they, they, they want to stay that way. So all of these, all, all kind of people who are described as the world, right, fit into one of these categories. And these people work together, maybe not intentionally, obviously, but they, they sort of are, um, they're, the way that they live, the way that they um, work, carry on, live their lives, uh, all produces a kind of society or a state of affairs for humanity that looks very different from God's will. Together, these people, the world, right? Um, they build institutions, they staff institutions, they shape cultures, they influence economies. They don't do this uh, always in a very well-organized way, like a, in well-organized movements where they're, they're, they're working closely with one another in a very intentional way. These are just people who are living their lives by and large, <coughs> by and large. Um, these are people who just don't know God really, you know, they don't know the goodness of God. They don't know how good it would be to have him as Lord of their life. And so they're just living their lives as they, as best they can, as they see fit, according to their own whims, according to their own opinions, according to their own desires. That's not to say that there aren't people who are very consciously trying to shape the world in such a way where they are undermining faith or trying to produce a world very consciously that is antithetical to the gospel. That does exist. Uh, and we would be naive to think that that didn't. We're here trying to think carefully about how to build up the kingdom of God, you know, how to live our faith well and how to make a positive impact on the lives of people around us. If you think that there are people who are committed to realizing a very different kind of a kingdom, then you're fooling yourself. You know, there's plenty of people out there who would like to see something very different from the kingdom of God uh, being realized in the world. But again, it needn't be this, uh, as we're, we're not talking necessarily about you know, shadow organizations and, and things necessarily. We're just talking about people who don't know the Lord and who are living as though he didn't exist. However you formulate it, uh, make no mistake about it. The world is a true spiritual enemy. And it's a dangerous one. The world is powerful. And we'll see that now in just a as we kind of, as we go through this, it's a great obstacle to our salvation and to our perfection. And one of the things that's so dangerous about it is how just pervasive it is. It's the world, it's the, the, the air that we breathe. It's like, you know, a fish, you know, does a fish know it's wet? We are in the world. <laughs> we're in it. And, you know, we're not in a, in a culture, in an, an environment, in a society where God is at the center, where he is honored and loved and where he is, his plan for humanity is seen for what it is as this, the thing that we're made for. And, you know, uh, where there's a great commitment to that, to his uh, commandments, you know, we're in a very different kind of a place and it's just all around us. 
how does the world as a spiritual enemy, how does it affect us as believers? St. Thomas Aquinas describes two ways that the world affects us. The first is, he says that the world seduces us. And then the second thing he says is that the world, if it can't seduce us, terrorizes us. So how does the word world seduce us? Well, the first thing that the world does is it holds up as attractive certain types of lives or certain values, truths, which are directly opposed to those of the gospel. So like it'll hold up, um, you know, wealth and the wealthy, and it will sort of like really hone in on their lifestyles and hold those up as being, you know, worth pursuing. Those people are really happy. They've really got it. Or those who are powerful or those who are um, kind of shrewd and, and intelligent and ruthless or those who know how to enjoy life and how to take it easy and how to relax, how to, you know, kind of drink in the pleasures of life. By holding up these as like the, I don't know, uh, lifestyles that are, um, are supposed to uh, be what it's all about or to be happy, uh, the world seduces us. It kind of attracts us. It beckons us towards that and towards those values. The world also plays on our vices. It uses our own inclinations and our weaknesses against ourselves in order to sell us things, sell us products, and to promote a kind of a lifestyle. It wants to make of us consumers. It appeals to our love of money, our, inc our inclination to be drawn to wealth or our inclination to be drawn to pleasure. Sex sells, as they say, right, in advertising world. Or it appeals to our love of self, you know, our desire to be unique, well thought of, um, attractive, uh, you know, uh, um, to be masters of our own destiny. You know, all these things are uh, kind of held out to us as ideals by the world everywhere and in so many different places. The world also normalizes sin by showing us example after example after example of it in a positive light, in the entertainment that we consume, in the media. Um, if everyone is doing X, Y, or Z, and it's celebrated, it's celebrated, or at least it's excused or minimized, it's, not ma it's made into like kind of a, not a big deal at all. How much harder does that make us, does it make it for us to stand strong against something? So that's the first thing is that the world seduces us. It holds out things as attractive, as good, as things that you, a way to live your life and as things that you'd want to have plays on your, on your vices and your inclinations uh, towards, you know, pleasure and towards, um, you know, wealth, towards kind of love of self. And it normalizes sin and it kind of desensitizes us to it. I mean, <clears throat> this is all over the place and this is not done uh casually, this is often done very intentionally in a calculated way. Like we have been desensitized towards lots of things that even 20 years ago would have been like unthinkable for us. It would have been, um, we would have been shocked and we would have been like, uh, we would have kind of like recoiled from it. And, you know, this is held up as progress, but in actual fact, it's the normalization of, uh, of sin. Um, okay. So if the world can't seduce us, then it seeks to terrorize us and to force us to keep our mouths shut or to, um, uh, to kind of comply. So sometimes we see this in, we see this in different ways. Some it's kind of like hard terrorization, you could say, and some is more soft. So like the hard stuff is um, like organized persecutions, 
Um, these still happen. And, um, you know, like where there's, there's increasing numbers of uh, like laws that are going to be passed in different parts of the world, like in the United States that are squeezing uh, people of faith and who are uh, trying to force them to abandon principles that the world finds unpalatable, um, but which are like just, they were normal, normal kind of commonly held beliefs 25 years ago. Um, and they are standard basic uh, elements of all of the major religions, or at least the three like Abrahamic religions, you know, like Islam and Judaism and Christianity. Um, but more and more you see that there is a, an intentional squeezing uh, in order to bring people into line with what um, the world, right? What the world thinks to be uh, right and the way to go and fair and just. So that's one example in the Western world, obviously in, in other nations, other parts of the world, that hard persecution is harder, way harder, you know, where Christians really suffer and their lives are, are on the line for their, their following Christ. For the most part, though, in the West, what we have is more of a soft kind of terrorization, you know, so it's a soft kind of like uh, threatening um, influence. So like mockery and jest. These things turn timid souls from their commitment to God, or it like weakens your commitment to God or your commitment to doing what's right. We see this, especially with like young people, but it's true for all of us. I mean, how many probably of us have at certain times, like not said something or like caught ourselves because we didn't want to get into trouble or we didn't want to, you know, like uh, expose ourselves to someone else's ridicule or judgment or whatever, you know, kind of you catch yourself because the environment in which we live is hostile to a lot of elements of our, you know, and it would regard with scorn and not only like the controversial things like, you know, the, the belief that, you know, there are only two genders, for instance, or, you know, like that um, marriage is between one man and one woman, or not even, not only those things, but even like, uh, like a real personal relationship with Jesus, with, with Christ, um, or a, like a confidence in his church. Like these things are, are thought of as contemptible and ridiculous. And to express them would expose you to judgment and ridicule. And so it stops people. People keep quiet. They keep their head down. And for, again, a timid soul, that might be enough to really, like, um, do damage to their, their commitment, to their faith. And sometimes it's just, like, implicit. Sometimes it's not actually out there. You know, we wouldn't actually get, um, you know, hammered for being a believer that was unafraid and, you know, happy to talk about um, in situations where it's appropriate, you know, where you're, but sometimes more like it's in our head. There's an implicit threat that we perceive. This is all just sort of the, a manifestation of the world, the influence that the world can have both seducing and also when it can't seduce us and sort of draw us in and make us like everybody else, um, cookie cutter images of, of, of others terrorizing us and at least getting us to uh, keep our mouths shut, keep our heads down um, and kind of have a privatized faith, if not to like abandon it, basically. Here's another truth about the world, right? Is, uh, and this is something that our tradition holds out. It's easy to let ourselves be won over by the world or terrorized by the world because the world has an accomplice within our own hearts. 
it's easy to let ourselves be won over by the world, seduced by it, or to be terrorized by it, intimidated, because the world has an accomplice in our own hearts. Again, we have the flesh, our fallen human nature. We have a natural desire for, you know, high places, you know, that people would think well of us, for dignity, for an easy life, for wealth. And all of those things can can make us willing to compromise with the world, basically, uh, and to give in to its alluring, its allurements, its seduction, or um, to comply with the ways that it would kind of, um, that it would intimidate us. The world is particularly powerful in the earliest stages of your spiritual life. As you grow in your relationship with God, uh, you come to love him more. You're growing in union of love with God. And he comes to mean more and more to you. And you come to see him more and more uh, for how good he is. And as like the great desire of your life. And all of that other stuff kind of starts to fade away. It's grip that it has on you becomes looser and looser. St. Teresa of Avila talks about this uh, phenomenon. She has a book called The Interior Castle, and she describes the the progress of a soul towards God as like journeying through different what she calls mansions or like dwelling places. Think like a like maybe rooms in a big house. Right. So these the soul passes through in a castle like these different rooms. You know, Jesus says in my father's house, there are many rooms. You know, that's I think what she's drawing from. The soul goes through these different rooms, enters into the castle from outside, and then makes progress towards a central uh, room, uh, a place of dwelling where the soul and God are completely united to one another. Now, she describes those who are uh, absorbed, who are who are just in in the in the door, so to speak, who have just started to live their life, a committed life of like prayer and meditation of faith. She describes those as being often people who are completely absorbed still in the things of the world. And so deeply immersed in possessions or honors or business. And she says that they, those people who are consumed still by those things, even though they're living their faith are in some ways prevented from seeing just how radiant of a goal it is that they're aiming for union of love with God. It, it, it seems, it doesn't seem as immediate as even appealing sometimes as the stuff that's kind of all around you. She says, as you go further into that uh, castle, you pass through these mansions, you come closer and closer to that radiance and you're able to see it far more clearly and for how good it is. And all those other things kind of pass into the background. So just to say that, you know, that the influence that the world has is particularly powerful the earlier we are in our spiritual life. Now, as you know, I am giving you mostly, as you can hear, like the teachings of the saints, right? Um, our tradition, the that which scripture is able to kind of like, teach us. I'm going to give you something slightly different now, but not something I think that is uh, like, what's the word, like questionable or anything like that. I think you'll find it to be, to resonate with you very much. What I want to do is I want to describe to you the particular characteristics of the world that we, as we live in it today. And uh, because the world as we live today has all of those kind of common features, you know, of people trying to seduce us and also intimidate us. But there are some particular particularities, particular characteristics of the world in which we live that it's good for us to be aware of. And the reason I can't tell you about what the saints wrote about that is because they weren't writing about it. <laughs> you know, St. Thomas Aquinas doesn't have much to say about the 21st century because he didn't live in it, you know? So like, uh, but what I did do is I was, I've been listening very carefully to um, some 
like prophetic figures within the church now, and also some really really astute cultural um, uh, students students of the culture who are able to kind of analyze uh, the place that we're in right now. So again, I'm presenting it to you, but it's not just this isn't just my thoughts. Let's say. Um, so the, that all that said, the truths that the world promotes today. Again, like we say, the truth, the, the world kind of holds up values and certain truths, certain a way of life that is different, you know, from the gospel and often like uh, very much in contrast to it. The truths that the world promotes today are far more radical and far more pervasive than mo most of us realize. We're moving right now, like, and like when I say right now, I mean like right now in the last eight years, we're moving very quick, quickly from a culture that um, like sociologists and stuff would describe as modern to postmodern. So we're in this transition right now, move from a society described modern to now postmodern. And I'm going to describe what those are right now. So modernity, the, a mo the modern era, right, is one that's been around for quite a while, actually, since most people would say since the Enlightenment. So since the 1700s. And the modernity has been is characterized by confidence in first confidence in human ability to discover and come to know new things, especially like scientific knowledge, real confidence in that. Uh, second thing is it has a real skepticism about religion and any sort of like claims of faith, any sort of like uh, claims of non-scientific knowledge. It's very suspicious to those. And it has this belief as well of like the moral progress of history. So basically there's this general understanding that as the centuries have gone on, that humanity has gotten more enlightened, more humane, more intelligent, and just better. So just as the time is, as time has worn on, we've made progress and we're just like kind of, uh, we're just ascending all the time, right? As time passes, that's, the modern mindset, okay? Now, that view was abandoned in universities, in places of like, uh, in academia, in places of learning, uh, beginning about 100 years ago, when the 20th century's wars first started to really make their impact felt. It's hard to believe that everything's getting better and better, and humanity is just on this like trajectory upwards always, when you've got millions upon millions of people, tens of millions of people dying in two major world wars, when you have uh, communist dictatorships where untold millions are, are, have died in the 20th century alone in places like China and in Russia. And uh, when you just have like such misery, you know, in, in so many kind of different ways, so much inhumanity. It's hard to hold on to this conviction that it's all getting better all the time when the 20th century was bloody as it was. And it's also hard to have such rock solid and um, uncritical confidence in science and in technological progress when all of that murder, all of that bloodshed was made possible because of science. You think of like the nuclear you think of like uh, the nuclear bombs, the nuclear uh, bombs, which were dropped in, in Japan, or you think about like the scientific research that was done in Nazi and in, in Nazi like uh, kind of camps under the Nazi regime or under Japanese uh, rule as well. And there's lots of other examples, obviously, of, you know, where technology has proven to be, you know, uh, sometimes problematic and scientific advances have been in the wrong hands have done great damage. So again, academics and people in universities started to abandon those, that modern mentality about a hundred years ago. And that was growing more and more and more up to about the 1970s. But they start believing instead then, okay? This is the modern mentality. 
What they started believing is this, that the world is primarily about power. It's primarily about power, everything. And I mean, everything, our relationships, our economies, our genders, even language, science, logic itself, even all, all of those things, first of all, are based on power. Even the, like the sense of having like a human nature and like a common human nature, something that makes you a human being and me a human being, even that, that sort of like, uh, that sense that there's something that's common to all of us that is seen that beca became to be seen as being a, uh, a constrictive thing as someone exercising power and oppressing someone else. None of those things are objectively real according to this postmodern mentality, all of those things, gender, the economic kind of situation that we have here, um, you know, even logic and language is crazy. I mean, it's, it's so deep. That's why I'm saying it's so radical. All of those things are created. This is what this mentality says. They're created by certain groups to oppress other groups. And if you, and this is the, this is the sort of like, um, practical implication of this. If you and your identity group, the group that you belong to, if you don't start to acquire power and use it to fight other groups who are trying to oppress you or who are already oppressing you and you just don't even know it, then you are going to be under their heel. You're going to be the loser. So what you have to do is you have to huddle into your identity group, whichever one that you belong to, and you have to get organized and you have to start fighting. And the fighting looks like this. By adopting the posture of a victim. I am hard done by. I am oppressed. And then you start tearing down the institutions that have kept you down your whole life. And you didn't even know it. That movement, this mentality is like a, a movement. It's kind of an intellectual movement. Um, it's postmodernism, what it's called. And it's an offshoot from Marxism, from communism, which saw all, all things, saw world history as a, as, a, as a fight, as a struggle for power. But communism saw it only in terms of classes, you know, economic classes. This sees it in terms of like everything. It's all a battle. And it's all a power play. And you're either going to be the oppressor, the victor, or you're going to be the oppressed, the one on the bottom. Now, all of these, this mentality has actually run its course in universities. Um, it is, it's still there. It's still there, but it's just not like as maybe intellectually potent as it was, but it's spilled out into the streets, right? And so, this is the way that we're all being taught how to think and see the world. This is how your children are being taught how to think and how to see the world. And all the stuff or so much of the stuff that we've seen in the last number of years relate to this. I'm just going to list out a bunch of them and see if you can kind of see kind of how these things have come up. Black Lives Matter. Me too. Cancel culture. My truth versus your truth. The sense that you have a truth, I have a truth. We all have different truths, different narratives. Checking your privilege. Fake news. The patriarchy. Toxic masculinity. Identity politics. All of these are that come from this postmodern mentality. Okay. And um, yeah, we think that it's like, it seems so bizarre, like what I'm describing to you. Obviously, it seems like, you know, <laughs> you know, the, this sort of like battle, you know, it seems like it's somewhere 
a million miles away. It's being fought on university campuses somewhere, but it seems like a million miles away from the West of Ireland. But if you think that you're wrong, it's in the news media that we consume. It's in the schools we send our kids to. It's in the shows that we watch. And it's just all around us. There is a massive change that's happening in the world right now and in the mentality of the world. And it's complicated, right? Um, and it does undermine our faith and it challenges our faith in really significant ways. But it also provides us with a lot of opportunities. More on that in just a moment, okay? But if you're thinking like a follower of Christ, and if you look at the world not only as like a hostile force, but also as like a mission field, like where we're, we're sent out in order to win people, right? Then you'll be able to see that there's actually opportunities here as well. But again, there's, there's real challenges and it's very, um, it will lead to a lot of conflict and unhappiness. And we need to wear so that we can kind of um, choose and be just careful of what we're absorbing and what our kids are absorbing. Okay. So now I want to look at how do we fight the world understood as our spiritual enemy? How do we fight the world? The first thing we look at life from the perspective of eternity, looking at the, looking at the world at our lives from the perspective of eternity means that the pleasures that are being promoted, right? Uh, able to see them for what they truly are temporary and nothing in comparison to God. Those things don't seem nearly as good if you are thinking, if you are looking at things in the light of heaven, right? Also, what does the world do? Terrorizes us, right? So if we see things in the light of heaven, right? Again, we see all of those threats and all of the things that are sort of like, oh, the, the, you know, the ways that our life could be made uncomfortable right now or whatever. We see those for what they truly are as well, which are temporary and nothing in comparison to, again, what God has in store for those who love him. So it's really important for us to have our eye fixed on the Lord and see things in light of eternity and heaven. Because the allurements of the world don't seem nearly as alluring when you know Christ. And the, the things that the, the stick that the world wants to beat you with and sort of like scare you with, intimidate you, it's that they're like nothing when you have the Lord, when you know the Lord and you see the light, things in light of eternity. Think of the apostles, right? Like the apostles were literally beaten out of towns with sticks <laughs> for, for their faith and for, for uh, proclaiming Christ. And they were saying they rejoiced because like nothing, not even physical oppression, not losing friends, not, you know, the, the sort of like, disdain of other people, all of that paled in comparison to what they had been given, which is God himself. So if we live in, in, with our eye on the Lord with live with uh, and see the world in the light of heaven of eternity, uh, we do like we make great progress basically against the world. Um, and then we, we have to also like oppose the truths or values of the world with the authentic values that God has given to us. And this is where now postmodernism, this kind of weird thing that we're kind of coming into uh, where you have your truth, I have my truth. And like the, you know, there's no such thing as a human nature. Like I am only what I am only what I decide that I am and what I claim is my identity. And um, like, this is where the opportunity lies for us because people are going to be desperately searching for something solid to build their lives on. They're going to be desperately searching for something solid to build their lives on truths about the world, truths about God, truths about who they are. And they will be looking also for a break from a world where this war for power is everywhere 
and where you are always kind of uh, seeing yourself as a victim and other people as the enemy. That's exhausting. And that's, it sows resentment and, uh, you know, it, it does terrible damages, da damage to our relationships. People are going to be looking for a break from that, for a, a reprieve from this very bleak kind of like uh, way of looking at the world that this postmodern mentality has. And the truth is that like the gospel provides, provides that. The gospel provides real substantial truths about who God is, who you are, uh, what you were made for. Christianity is, was known in the early days, in the earliest days of the, of the faith as the way, the way. Like it gives you a way to live and a goal towards which you're heading. And, and not just any goal. Like it's the thing you're made for. And also the gospel unites people. Uh, one of the most beautiful things, if you start to read the Bible, start to read like St. Paul, one of the amazing things that happened in the early church was they realized that because of what Jesus had done, the Jewish people, the, the people of God were now united with Gentile believers in one new people. And that this new community, this covenant community, this new people of God, not, didn't break down ethnic or national lines or racial lines or anything or even gender or anything like that. N none of those things, um, none of those things no longer separated us. We have been brought together and united as a people because of what the Lord has done. I'm telling you, when people start to tire from this fractured way of looking at other people, like if you're not from my race, then you're the enemy and I need to be like caught. I need to be, um, you know, I need to be on my guard with you or whatever, or with your um, political allegiance, like you're the enemy and I need to, to figure out ways to like, you know, beat you and kind of minimize your influence and, you know, rise above you and see my will done. Like when people tire of that, the beauty of the gospel is going to really pop. They're going to be desperate for really for hope as well. People increasingly, there's a real hopelessness in, in the, in our, in our world right now, because there's no salvation in the modern post postmodern mentality. There's just victory for you and your little group. And what happens? What happens when your group is no longer oppressed? What happens when your group becomes the dominant one and you're still not happy? What do you do? Like, it's, uh, if that's the way that you're looking at the world and that's the way that people are looking at the world, like there's not real substantial hope there and people are going to really, they are already and they will increasingly suffer from hopelessness. And again, the hope of the gospel is going to really, um, it's going to be like a, a, a life, a lifesaver that we're going to throw to people. Please God. The Catholic church has been entrusted by these true with these truths by Christ himself. And, uh, they also, we also carry within us a reservoir of human wisdom and people are all, are already waking up to that. That there is real truth, substantial truth and beauty to be found within the church and also a huge patrimony of wisdom that's been kind of like dumped basically, um, you know, kind of thrown out with, like with the bathwater. And don't get me wrong, in the short term, like we can expect, and I, for, for a while, I don't know how, I'm, I'm not going to predict how long these things are going to take or whatever, but I don't even know if this is going to happen in terms of like a global or like a cultural scale 
or a national scale. But I think that individually we're going to be able to, that people are going to um, come to the Lord and come to like the light of the gospel uh, just because they're going to see how um, impoverished this, the, the modern, the postmodern mentality is the way of life that the world offers them. They're going to see how sad and impoverished it is. And I think on an individual level, that said, again, I think we're, we're in for a, a rough time in uh, as, as Christians and as believers uh, for the next, um, as we go into this, make this transition into this new kind of postmodern uh, place. And we're increasingly get labeled with, you know, the different terms, the different, uh, you know, slanders of the different phobias and supposed bigotry. So get ready for that. But th there's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, we know what it is that we've received and we know that like, this is for everyone and it's good news for everyone. Um, we know that as Jesus said, if they hate, if they hate you know that they hated me before you. So what do we do? Um, in addition to keeping our eyes on Christ, seeing the world in light of eternity, and also um, looking for opportunities to be missionary, uh, to sort of use the the different like pitfalls of the postmodern mentality to like you know reach out to people. We also have to really ground ourselves in the truth. So the the tradition recommends that we read and reread the gospel and praying that God really helps us to understand what is there, what he has revealed to us, what he's taught us there. And then watch what you and your families are exposing yourselves to. The world seeps in through everywhere, you know, through all of our friendships and, you know, through our families, for some family members, you know, through the media that we consume, through our social media, through the uh, entertainment that we're watching. Like, it's just sort of everywhere. So you have to be, well, you know, especially for children, like you got to really watch that, you know, because it will shape them. They're much more malleable, you know, at a younger age. But even for ourselves, <clears throat> like, we don't want to be taken in a lot of garbage, you know, and we want to really be instead drinking in the truth. So meant to, you know, turn the tap off uh, or at least lessen a lot of the stuff that we, we can be just like consuming um, uncritically and uh, be the light of the world. Like we'd said before, without being preachy witness to the truth, witness to the truth. There are sources of virtue other than wealth and success. There are, me, there are sources of happiness other than those of wealth and success. Virtue doesn't go without reward. And in this world, it's good to be virtuous. It's good to live a life of, you know, um, honesty and selflessness, of self-mastery. Like, these are good now. And they are like the ways that we are walking towards heaven. The pure joys of home and the family are the sweetest. And responsibility is not the enemy of your happiness, but a super important part of what makes life meaningful. These are really important things that we have to like know, be able to like kind of share with other people as well, our own way. <clears throat> We also have to find like-minded people and build friendships there and especially look for families who have faith and who are strong and uh, so that your kids can have friends who are in families who are kind of like yours. I would really encourage you to do that. One thing that I experienced in my work with youth is that uh, I found that when I was able to plug, when, I, when we were able to plug young people into friend groups where they also, their friends also had faith. Those young people kept the faith. 
Whereas if you just send them out, if you give them faith and then you just like slingshot them out, out to university or even to secondary school now, it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's, it's hard for the faith to survive because the world is very powerful. So got to find friends who have faith, I think, and families who are kind of like-minded. We don't have to isolate from everybody else, but I think it's important that we've got some, and even our, you know, main friendships, let's say, are helping us in our commitment to, uh, to live well and not taking us from it. And then don't compromise, make no compromises with the world uh, to please it or to seek its esteem because it is, it's, um, it's preventing you from making spiritual progress. And that's all that matters at the end. Okay. That's everything. Um, so I saw that there was a question there. I'm just going to read this out loud if you don't mind. He posted it to everybody, but I'm just going to read it too. So these new Marxist slash postmodern ideologies seem to be attempting, seem to be an attempt to deal with the problem of suffering by placing the blame on others and or on reality. It echoes the story of the Tower of Babel. They believe that with enough power, they can build systems that end and end end suffering. Christ teaches us that the way to relieve suffering was through love, carry your cross and trusting in God. That's absolutely true. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, there's a lot more that could be said about like postmodernity. I was just giving you like a real, like real brief, um, like uh, just a little taster of it. Um, we might finish with a prayer and then I'll give you a blessing. Okay. So in the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Lord, thank you so much for uh, the gospel. Thank you for your great goodness in giving yourself to us. You are the treasure of our lives. We pray that you would help us more to grow in that, our understanding of that truth and of all of the truths uh, that you have revealed to us. We ask you to bless us and our families, to bless our church and our country. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Very good. God bless you all. We'll talk next week about the devil and uh, we'll be good. All right. God bless now. Have a, have a nice evening.